0: Galatians 3 1 to 24. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith, on the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace Gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. What is it that people find attractive
1: about legalism? Um, I'm sure you've seen it, it happens in lots and lots of churches, churches where they want to have very strict rules in place about certain things, churches where they tell you exactly what it is that you can or can't wear, Uh, churches that have head coverings, Uh, rules about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, Uh, rules about alcohol, rules about what you can and can't eat. Sometimes the rules may have a kind of a vague basis in what the Bible says, but very often They're just rules that people have made up. I saw a website from a major denomination in this country. They were saying that they forbid people from doing such and such. Uh, They forbid this or they forbid that. And what they're forbidding really didn't have any basis in what the Bible said. It was just some traditions of their own that they'd set in place and had now enshrined them as laws that needed to be kept within the church. Uh, I had a friend uh, on the north coast when we were up there who insisted that people, to be saved, they had to be fully immersion baptised, but not just fully immersion baptised, fully immersion baptised in their particular church, and not even just their particular denomination, their particular church building in a neighbouring town. And, And it got to the point where the people in that church were saying that there was no salvation outside of that church and being baptised in that church. But legalism can express itself in a variety of different ways. I had a friend who attended a church that had some strange rules. One of them that surprised me was that you couldn't get married to somebody until you got approval from your Bible study group leader. So before you could pop the question to your girlfriend... You had to pop the question to your Bible study group leader. Now, I knew this for a fact because this guy had spoken to his Bible study group leader who had said that he didn't think it would be a good idea for this person to marry that girl. Let me give you one more example. Again, when we lived up on the North Coast, I had a young couple who came to see me. Uh, They wanted to get married. I knew that her dad was very involved in one of the churches in town and I was a little bit surprised that they weren't getting married in that church. But the fact was that they couldn't get married in that church because her fiancé was not a member of that denomination. He belonged to a different denomination. Fantastic Christian guy, uh, just not the right denomination. So the wedding had to happen in the Presbyterian church rather than in their church. See, legalism still abounds in churches today. And before we go pointing the finger at other people, which is really easy to do, we need to realise that we're not immune to it either. Now this morning we're looking at a section where Paul confronted the church in Galatia because some legalism had crept in there. Last week we saw that the big issue that the early church had to grapple with was this movement from Judaism to Christianity and particularly where the Mosaic law, the the law that was given to Moses on Sinai, where that is going to fit in with faith in Jesus and especially where it's going to fit in with the Gentiles. What do they need to do with the old covenant? Do those laws and practices still stand? Uh, The church in Galatia was predominantly a Gentile church, but people that they called Judaizers, Christians, people who'd placed their faith in Jesus, but still wanted to hang on to that Old Testament law, they were saying that the Galatian Christians needed to live by that law as well. That obedience to certain laws, not all of them but many of them, was essential. But we need to be clear, they weren't opposing Paul's message. They would have been saying, what Paul's told you is fantastic, we're so glad that you've heard that. But they just wanted to suggest that Paul hadn't given them all of the information that they needed. They just wanted to supplement what Paul had left out few laws from the old covenant that needed to be obeyed. We saw last week that the church had got off on the right foot. Paul had been there and had preached the gospel to them. But what's changed? Well, you can see that the the big issue here, have a look at chapter 2 and find verses 15 and 16, partway through uh, that uh, verse 15, I think it is. Paul wants to clearly restate the message that he preached to them. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He's outlining again some important information they need to know. Acceptance by God comes only by faith in Jesus. It doesn't come about because of practices that you've put in place or rules that you've insisted on obeying. To think that you will be accepted by God by obeying those rules or by living in a particular way, well, that's an affront to God's grace, isn't it? And it's an insult to the death of Jesus on the cross. Paul's heard about what's happening in Galatia, and I think it would be safe to say he's stunned. Chapter 3, verse number 1. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It's tough language, isn't it? Who's conned you, Paul says? Who's tricked you into believing this message? And then he says, I want you to explain one thing to me. Did you receive the Spirit by obeying the law or by believing what you heard? And he asked much the same question down in verse number 5. Did God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you've heard? They knew the answer to the question. They knew that their lives had been transformed and it wasn't because of obedience to laws. Their lives had been transformed because they put their trust in Jesus. Jesus. God gave them his Holy Spirit because they placed their trust, their complete trust in Jesus for their relationship with God. That's what the prophets said was going to happen. Back in the book of Joel, this is what Joel says. And afterward, or this is what God says through the prophet Joel, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The spirit's going to be the defining difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. This is what Ezekiel says. I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. They didn't receive the spirit by obeying the law. They received it because they believed what they heard. They received it because that's what God said would be the defining difference between the old covenant that he'd made at Mount Sinai and the new covenant that has now come in Jesus. Now, Paul says that alone ought to be proof that all you need is faith in Jesus. But he goes on in this passage to explain three reasons why thinking that going back to the law is a really stupid idea. The first one is this, the law was never the basis of righteousness or a relationship with God. The law was never the basis of righteousness or a relationship with God. So he wants to take them back to Abraham, where the whole thing began, where the whole old covenant was established. Chapter 3, verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's the founding father of the people of Israel. And do you see? He believed God and is therefore declared righteous. Paul quotes from the story of Abraham in Genesis Why was Abraham declared righteous? Because he believed. Abraham was right with God because he believed, not because he obeyed anything, just simply that fact of believing what God had promised made him right with God. It's a bit of a natural tendency that we human beings have, isn't it, to think that we can actually do things to earn a bit of credit with God. I suppose that's the way it works in our world, isn't it? You want to impress your boss if you're looking for that promotion? Well, there'll be things that you'll need to do in order to impress him. But that's not the way that God works. We have this idea that we can accumulate enough good works, that if we can be obedient enough, then surely God, that's got to count for something, hasn't it? But Paul says that's not what God's asking for. God's not a bookkeeper. He's not an accountant He wants us to believe him, to believe the promises that he's made and above all, to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus. There's a great passage in John's Gospel where some people come to Jesus and they want to know what they've got to do to do the work of God, to do what God requires from them. And this is how the conversation goes. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God, the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. We don't like that though, do we? Say, so that's great, I'm, I'm comfortable with believing, but maybe there'd be a couple of other things that I could do to just kind of crank it up a notch. Wouldn't there be a few rules that I could obey, a few laws that could really count for something so that I've got believing in Jesus... And I've also done these things. But he wants to say, well, Abraham's proof of this whole principle. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Second reason Paul says that thinking you can go back to the law is really stupid is that the, the law is a job lot. You don't get to pick and choose which bits of the law you're going to keep. Verse 10 of Galatians chapter 3. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. Paul wants them to be clear about this. You can't just choose a couple of things, like a couple of food rules and a couple of things about the Sabbath. If you think that you need to pursue your relationship with God by obeying old covenant law, then you've got to do the lot. It seems that the Judaizers had come into Galatia and just wanted to give people a smattering of things that they needed to do. A little handful of laws, things about the Sabbath, things about food laws, probably circumcision was in there. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You want to do it, you've got to do all of it. If you think that a relationship with God, that righteousness can be obtained by the law, then you've got to do the whole lot because that's what the law says. That's what amuses me about the legalism that we see around today, is that people think that if they just keep the Sabbath and don't eat bacon and wear the right clothes, then they can be acceptable to God. But it's just picking and choosing. It's the laws that you think will suit you. Paul says you don't get to choose. If you want to play by the law, then you have to do everything. But the third and the most compelling reason that Paul gives is the law was only ever intended as a temporary thing. The law was part of the old covenant. And Paul points out something important. The law wasn't even there when the covenant was established. It was added after God had already established the covenant. Look at verse 17. What I mean is this, Paul says, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. The promises that God made to Abraham were not dependent upon the law. The law was a later addition to the covenant and a temporary addition to the covenant. Look at how Paul explains it in verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When I finished my training as a school teacher, there were no permanent jobs for school teachers, so I was out doing casual teaching. And there's some advantages to casual teaching, but by and large, it's a pretty thankless job. Uh, The kids know that you're only there for the day and you know that you're only there for the day. You're not going to try and achieve too much. I mean, the real teacher will be back the next day and anything that you did was just temporary, probably would have even been put into the bin when the the real teacher got back there the next day. So what you did was necessary and important, but it was really only to keep things in place until the real teacher got there. That's the image Paul's got in mind here. That's the place that the law had in the Old Covenant. It was the casual teacher. It was just minding things until the real teacher got there. The law was never the permanent arrangement and it was never intended to last. When Jesus, the real thing, comes, then the substitute's job is over. Verse 19, chapter 3. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was added because of transgressions and it was added until Jesus came. And once Jesus came, the law has done its job. It's no longer needed. But I think when you read through this passage, it kind of leaves you with just one question then how should we view the law today? As Christians, what should our attitude be towards the law? Well, can I say, I think the answer is actually reasonably simple. We view it the way we view all other aspects of the Old Covenant. It's fulfilled in Jesus. I don't see too many Christians wanting to reinstate the sacrificial system that they had back in the pages of the Old Testament or even the priesthood that they had back in the Old Testament There aren't too many Christians around who are insisting that you have to be circumcised today, thank goodness. There aren't many who are clearly advocating for Old Testament food laws. All those things find their fulfilment in Jesus. Sacrifices, fulfilled in Jesus, the final sacrifice. Priesthood, fulfilled in Jesus. He's our great high priest. Temple, fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is God with us. You don't need a symbol of God's presence when Jesus is with you. And the law fulfilled in Jesus. The law, even the Ten Commandments, were only ever intended as a temporary thing. Look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. There's two passages where, right at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where he quotes from the Ten Commandments and then offers a modification. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see the way that works? He says, you've heard it said, and then he says, but I say to you. He's quoting the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel on Mount Sinai and he says, "Yeah, that was great, but this is what I now say. There he is doing what Paul said he would do. The law, even the Ten Commandments, were only a temporary thing. They were put in place until Jesus came. Now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. We're under the supervision of Jesus himself. He is our authority. Now, can I say, I think this is something that we need to grasp clearly. Regularly hear people say that Ten Commandments, well, that's a good summary of what God expects from us. No, it's not. Don't think that. It's a crazy mistake to make. It's not true. In fact, it's worse than not true. It's a dangerous thing to say. What God wants from us is is that we believe in Jesus and place our trust in him. And he won't settle for anything less than that. I think sometimes churches are are pretty guilty of sending out a mixed message. Very often we can give the impression that the Ten Commandments is kind of a minimum standard. If we can meet that, then we've got to be part of the way there. That's what really God expects from people. We give the impression if you can live up to those commandments, you've probably done enough. You're you're probably bound to be accepted by God. And again, that's not true. The only means by which we can be accepted by God is by believing in his son, Jesus. The law, including the Ten Commandments, was a temporary thing. We had some friends when we lived up on the north coast who were building a new home and while they were doing that, they lived in a shed. Now, this isn't their shed, but this is kind of what their shed looked like. It was just a work shed, which is where all the farm machinery... They had a macadamia farm, and they kept all the farm machinery in a part of this shed. So when you walked in the door, the very first thing you noticed was the very strong smell of diesel. It. Uh, they had some plastic sheets up to try and keep the farm machinery right away from where the living area was. But it was... Pretty primitive, and it just had a a, a simple metal roof just like this one. So, anytime there was any rain, and we got a fair bit of that up in Mullumbimbi, I have to say, uh, you couldn't even hold a conversation, let alone watch television or make a phone call. It was just deafening in there inside the rain. Now, they put up with all of that because they knew that there was this fantastic house just outside the door. Up a little higher on the hill that would one day be the house that they moved into. Now, without wanting to try and stretch the analogy too far, the law was like the shed. It was the temporary thing given to Israel, never given to the Gentiles, and especially not given to the Galatians or us. But the house, that's the new covenant that we have in Jesus. So why would you suggest that people should go and live in a shed? Why would you think that that's what God requires from you? If you think that what God requires from you is obedience to the Ten Commandments, you're trying to live in the shed. What God wants from us is to believe in His Son. Now, can I say... Next time you hear someone say that, that all that really God requires from us is that we just obey the Ten Commandments, or any time you say anyone wants to suggest to you that all religions are pretty much the same, they're just about being a good person, make sure that you join that conversation. Make sure you join that conversation and say, that's actually not right, you know, that's not what Christians believe. The Bible says that what God wants from us is that we would place our trust in his son Jesus and then live under his lordship.